Have you ever noticed, maybe kind of like me, that, that some phrases or words can give you such a different reaction depending on the situation you find yourself in? Right, so if you hear someone say, this might hurt a bit, it wouldn't put you off too much if you were about to get your flu shot. Uh, but if you remember back to hearing that from the schoolyard bully at recess, it elicits a whole different set of emotions. Or, or if someone says, duck, that'd be great news if you're bird hunting with a friend. But if you're catching a baseball game close to the action, it can be quite dangerous. Break a leg is a compliment if you are about to go onto stage and act your heart out. Uh, but if you hear it on the other side of your locked door when you owe someone an exorbitant amount of money, <laughs> not, I don't think that would apply to anybody here. That's a ridiculous example. Watch this. Makes great sense if you're sitting down with a group of friends and deciding what to watch on Netflix, but out of the mouth of your three-year-old on top of the dresser, that means something altogether different. You feel differently about it. So if I were to say to you today, I want to talk to you about Jesus. That might sound okay from the pulpit, but my guess is there might even be a few here that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. But that is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Jesus, and, and if it does make you uncomfortable, too late, lock the doors, everybody, we're in for it here now. You're together with me. We're going to look at what Jesus has in store for us this morning. Continuing on with our sermon series entitled Sola, Five Ideas That Changed the World. Looking back to the anniversary 500 years ago of the Reformation and these five core ideas of what it means to be saved how we can be saved. Or as we've been framing that question, how can we be in right relationship with God? In the past two weeks, Rusty has brought us through uh, the ideas that salvation is by grace alone, meaning it is an act of God's goodness, uh, is his action, his power, his love, his mercy in which we are saved, not our own. Then we talked about salvation by, uh, by faith alone, in which we put our faith and trust in God, where we do not put it in our own ability to do good works or be good people. We have trust and faith in God for our salvation. And this morning we're going to look at solus Christus, which means in Christ alone. This was the central emphasis of the entire Reformation movement, Jesus and Jesus alone. In fact, it can be said that faith alone is faith in Jesus alone. And grace alone is the grace of God extended to us in Christ alone. So understanding this sola is really our key to understanding the other four. It is the central idea, both of the Reformation and of our sermon series. Simply put, Jesus is the only way that we can have a right relationship with God. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Now, you don't need to take my word for it. Christ himself says this in the Gospel of John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you were one of the ones that felt slightly uncomfortable about me talking about Jesus, then this type of exclusive claim might make you feel very uncomfortable. There would be many of us that might feel that way because we walk and we talk and we live in a culture and a society that wants to be as inclusive as possible. 
And we, we are surrounded by messages that you can believe whatever you want, and there are many different pathways to ultimately end up in having a right relationship with God. There's many different ways. How could you be so close-minded? Are there many different ways to God? Are there many different pathways to right relationship with Him? Well, church, that's not what the Bible claims. That's not what Jesus teaches about himself. And as we dig deeper in our time together this morning, I believe we will see that it only makes sense for Jesus to be the only way. But in order for us to see the solution of our problem that was hindering our relationship with God, we need to understand what that problem was. And as we've outlined in the last few weeks, it is a sin problem where we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we have recognized we're dependent on God's grace and, and faith that, that we cannot save ourselves. So we are a sinful human being. And there is a God who is holy. He is beyond perfect. There is no sin in him. In fact, he is so holy he cannot abide with or have relationship with sin. So how does a holy God who is perfectly loving and perfectly just have right relationship with sinful people? That is our problem, the obstacle of sin. God's plan for salvation was incredibly specific because if God only forgave sin without judging the consequence of sin, he would cease to be just. He would cease to be righteous. It would not be in God's character to do that. So the opportunity for us to just have our sins wiped clean without any consequence is not in God's character. He would cease to be holy. But on the other hand, if he only judged our sin as we deserve, then we would bear the consequences we would be condemned. We would bear punishment. It would not be possible for us to have a relationship with a God who loves us. So the question is, how does a loving yet just God deal with our sin problem so that we may be saved and be with him? In Jesus and in Jesus alone, we see God's fine-tuned plan for salvation come to life. I'd like us to look at five different necessities that make God's saving mission possible. We'll look at five different things, and if any one of these things didn't happen the way that God intended, if it was any different at all, then our problem would still be in place. These necessities then should help us prove Jesus' claim that it was such a, a specific act of salvation that it could only be true found in Jesus. I'd invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Philippians, starting in chapter 2, verse 6. What's interesting, it comes from a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he's actually writing about humility. And as he's talking about the church and humility, he says, be like Christ. And then he goes on to have this explanation of Jesus and his specific act of salvation. Philippians 2, starting in verse 6 talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. This is good news for us. It is Christ alone. 
So what are these five things that needed to happen for God to fix that sin problem and remain true to his holiness and his justice and his character? Well, first, Jesus needed to be both fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. The Apostle John thought so strongly that this was, it was necessary to teach the church that he began his entire gospel with the message. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is fully divine. He is God. And, and that has been the case since eternity past to eternity future. It has never ceased to, to be the case. Jesus has always been fully divine. And as Paul described in the passage we just read, he says Jesus was in the form of God. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand that phrase there because what Paul is saying is he's agreeing with John, saying Jesus is divine, he is God. He doesn't mean that he was a model or a symbol. He's affirming the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus chose in his divinity to come and to put on flesh. And as John describes it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus emptied himself, became flesh, took on humanity and walked in our shoes, came down to our level and he lived and he taught and he died among us. Jesus didn't cease to be divine. We need to make sure that we understand in his character, in his nature, he was and is and always will be God. Yet he did empty himself. And what Paul means there is he gave up some divine characteristics so that he could enter fully, truly, and completely into the human experience. He became flesh and dwelt and lived among us. It's also important to recognize that Jesus was not some sort of half-God and, and half-man like we see in Greek mythology with Hercules. No, that's also not true. This is the miracle of the incarnation that God himself would come and would take on flesh and be both human and divine. And this was necessary because, as we have learned, salvation is by grace alone. It is an act of God. Humankind, we find ourselves in a situation that we need saving from, but we cannot save ourselves. And so it took somebody, it took God coming down to be part of that act of salvation. Jesus did this when he came down to our level and lived among us. Jesus was fully God, he was fully man, but he lived a life unique to anyone else who walked on this earth because Jesus needed to be perfect. Any, uh, any perfect people here today? Any perfect people? Um, this is just an example. I'm not claiming to be perfect, okay? And that was, we all understand that we are not perfect. And when we read God's word, we understand that, that there are things that God desires us to not do that we do. And there are other things that God does desire us to do that we avoid doing. And, and in all of these ways, we, we are not perfectly obedient people. Yet Jesus was Looking back at, at Paul's writing in Philippians, he says, "In being found in human form, fully man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You see, church, where we have been disobedient, 
in our actions and our inactions, Christ was perfectly obedient to God. No sin was found in him. Uh, in other writings by the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, we find that he picks up on this perfection of Jesus, and he actually makes a profound point that matters to us in understanding God's plan of salvation. And Paul compares two people. He compares Adam, the first man who sinned, and Jesus, the perfect man who never disobeyed. This is what he writes in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience, or sorry, disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that the first man, Adam, when he chose to disobey God's one and only command, sin entered the world, and we've had that sin problem ever since. Yet Adam was not able to remain in perfect obedience. Jesus came to earth, and he was able to be perfect. He was able to continue to obey. And because of that perfect obedience, where sin entered the world through Adam, sin gets removed through Christ. He was perfect. He was righteous. And we see now the necessity of Jesus being fully human so that he could undo what Adam brought. So he could be perfect where Adam was not. That the sin problem could be fixed where it haunted us all. And it required God to give grace and it required a perfectly obedient human to undo the actions of Adam. One thing I think we need to pause and realize here is that Jesus did not come by his perfection easily. I think we can kind of slide into this idea that, well, he was the son of God, and so it would have been easy not to sin, and, and he never would have been tempted at all, and, and how, how it must have just come so naturally for him to, to keep obeying. But that's not the picture that the scriptures paint. We see Jesus tempted by the devil himself. We see Jesus experiencing anger at uh, the religious legalism and frustration of his disciples, and he weeps at the loss of his friend. And we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be put to death, and he cries out to God, is there any other way? Can I disobey and your act of salvation still work? And God says, no. And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. So he obeys, but he is literally sweating drops of blood. Remember that Jesus' obedience was not easy for him, yet he overcame it all. And he was obedient perfectly, even to death on a cross. Because in God's fine-tuned act and plan of salvation, Jesus needed to die. He needed to die. How can we understand this? How can we understand what was accomplished on the cross? Well, firstly, I would say that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And to dig into that, we need to go back to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, where God chose his people, the nation of Israel, and gave them the law. And in the law, they had the rights of animal sacrifices. And, and so at different periods of time, the priests would sacrifice the animals, and their blood would be a temporary covering over the sins of the people. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when he called his chosen people, Israel, to be his people, they still had that sin problem. So how could a holy God 
be a God of a sinful people. And that temporary solution was the sacrificial system. And they would sacrifice these animals and that would cover the sins for a while, for a while, for a while. But it was never meant to last. And we find the fulfillment, the completion of that system in Jesus Christ. They call him the Lamb of God, that perfect, unblemished, sinless sacrifice upon the cross. And his blood was sufficient not just to cover over sin, but to wash it away, to remove it completely for all people, for all time, forevermore. On the cross, as Jesus' blood flowed, sin was washed away. He was the perfect sacrifice. And through him, then, when we appear before God, we're not appearing in the tarnish of our own sin. We appear clothed in the beautiful white righteousness of Christ because he was perfect and he died for us. But not only was Jesus on the cross that perfect sacrifice, it's, it's much more personal than that too. We know that we are able to stand before God unblemished by our sin because Jesus took God's judgment in our place. Because if we truly do understand and are willing to admit that we are sinners and that there are consequences to those sins, then we need to realize that Jesus took our place and he bore our burdens. He bore our sin. He took our punishment. And on that cross, we see that unique one and only instance in which God could pour out the righteous judgment against sin and remain holy and just. Yet he could do so while remaining completely loving and true. We see justice and mercy flow together. Our sin had to be dealt with, but instead of punishing us as we deserve, God sent his one and only son to die on our behalf. And in this, we see salvation as an act of God judging sin at great cost to himself, remaining holy and just, but loving and merciful and gracious And make no mistake, it needed to happen in this exact manner because nowhere else but the cross can you find that perfect sacrifice for sin and a loving God who would gladly take your penalty upon himself. There is no other way. Sometimes when we go through the story of the gospel, we like to, to end at the cross and to be certain the cross is the turning point for all humankind. But that is not the end of the story. Because not only did Jesus conquer sin on the cross, but it was when he came back to life three days later where he conquered death. Your sin was conquered at the cross and death was conquered at the resurrection. And the resurrection is necessary because as we'll find out from Paul, it holds our hope of eternal life. If we can say here today that I I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, and someone says, why do you believe you have eternal life? Your answer is because he rose again. Because that he's not dead and buried in a tomb. He's alive and well forevermore. That is our hope of eternal life. Paul thought so strongly about this that he uses a lot of 1 Corinthians to talk about how important it is for us to understand and trust that Jesus came back to life. He writes this starting in chapter 15. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, then we are of all people to be most pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
And what Paul is saying is this. He says, if, if we only believe in the death but not the resurrection of Christ, then our hope for eternal life is in vain. If we do not believe in the resurrection, then when we die, that's it. That's the end. Our hope is this life only, and we are to be most pitied. But Paul also says that is not the case. It is true that Jesus has risen again. And in that resurrection, we have life. There's one very important word I'd like to highlight from Paul's passage. He talks about Jesus being the first fruits. The first fruits. Well, what does that mean for us? It has very significant personal value to us. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, in his full humanity, when he received that resurrection body and lives forevermore in it, that is the exact example and hope that we have. He is the first resurrected human being, and we all share to have his same hope in the future. As Jesus is, so we will also be at the day of the resurrection. He is the first of many. He is the example, the model, and the proof of the hope that we have for eternal life. The resurrection is incredibly important. It is necessary. But I would argue it's also not the end of our gospel story. No, it doesn't stop at the cross. It doesn't even end with the resurrection. Because lastly, Jesus needed to ascend to heaven. Jesus needed to ascend to heaven. You might ask, well, why is that important? You know, why is that a necessity? Uh, a good uh, a professor that I had at Prov wrote a book on the ascension, trying to explain some of the importance of, of, of why it needs to have a, a, a predominant place in how we understand Jesus. And uh, Tim Perry is his name, and he writes this. He says, the proof of Jesus' victory was not only in his resurrection, but also in his ascension. And so as his disciples watched him ascend into heaven to take back his rightful place in heaven, that was the proof of who Jesus was and what he had accomplished here on earth. Later on, Perry says the ascension is the, is the sign of Jesus' victory and his exaltation. That the same Jesus who came to humble himself, to empty himself, to die a death we deserve, would ultimately be exalted as the King of Kings. And this is exactly the thought that Paul ends our passage with, where he says, Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And in the ascension of Jesus, we see him exalted, we see him restored, and we see victory and salvation. But there is one more component of why it's important to realize Jesus ascended, and it's very personal as well. You see, Jesus went to heaven so that he could mediate between us and God. And I was thinking as I was getting ready for the sermon this week, maybe there's another, another word or phrase. I didn't want this to feel like a theology classroom, but, but that really is the, the, the right word for what Jesus is doing. He is mediating between us and God. And if we think back to how we defined our problem of a holy, just God and this, and this obstacle of sin, we needed somebody to bridge that gap to remove that obstacle, to fix that problem so that we could have true and personal and intimate relationship with the Holy God. And Jesus mediates for us. He bridges that gap. He removes that obstacle each and every day. In 1 Timothy, we see this affirmed. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, and that man is Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all. He mediates. He bridges the gap. He allows us to enter into that personal relationship 
with God. And this isn't uh, this is something that we can understand again looking back to the old covenant where in, in, in that initial covenant between God and his people Israel, they had these animal sacrifices and the temple worship and the priests uh, administered those rites and they were the go-between or the mediators between God and his people. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God and they would, take, um, they would tell the people what God desired of them and they would take the, the prayers of the people to God. They were the imperfect and, and temporary mediators for God and his people. Yet in Jesus, we have this perfect high priest who is constantly and perfectly allowing us to enter into that relationship with God, enter into his very throne room when we pray and he will hear us. See, in the new covenant, Jesus has ascended to be our perfect mediator. And this is an active role as Jesus intercedes on our behalf. And so when we pray, we pray not so that God will hear us because of who we are and what we've done, but that God would hear us because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's because of Jesus' merit and because of his ongoing activity interceding on your behalf that we are able to pray directly to God. If you're anything like me, I think we have a, a phrase that we usually end our prayers with nine times out of ten. We pray in Jesus' name, right? So whether it's in, in church or Bible study or in your head or at the dinner table, we will often end our prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. And sometimes the danger of this is that it can become kind of rote. It is just a, a phrase that we, that we end to kind of make sure everybody knows it's time to eat, right? And, 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 and then that's why we put it there. But the truth is, you're actually saying something incredibly important. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're recognizing his active role as the mediator of your faith. His active role as bridging the gap between you and God, allowing his perfection to take your prayers right to the mercy seat. Jesus intercedes for us, he mediates for us, and we recognize that when we pray in Jesus' name. So, church, in these five necessities here, we see that God had an incredibly specific, fine-tuned plan for our salvation. And he put that plan into motion and he accomplished that mission through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You see, if any, of these thing, if any one of these things weren't true, we, we'd only get part of the picture and our hope would be skewed and it wouldn't be full and it wouldn't be complete and we couldn't claim to be in right relationship with God. Our problem would not have been solved. So if that one act of salvation was so specific, then we can truly say that there is no other solution to our problem with sin and our desire for a relationship with a holy God. There is one solution only. No other religion or philosophy or ideology can sufficiently explain how it's possible for us to have right relationship with God. You see, our salvation required an act of God and a perfect man, the ultimate sacrifice, victory over death, and ascension into glory. We are saved in Christ alone. Would you pray? God, I pray that that story would never get old. <laughs> Father, I pray that, that we would never forget the many things that your Son and our Savior has done for us. God, there is never a bad or a wrong time to talk about Jesus. And I pray as a group today that we would 
cling to Christ alone, that we would experience your grace alone through Jesus Christ, and that we would put our faith in you alone, in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would live lives that reflect that truth, that we are people who have never forgotten the cost of the cross, never forgotten that act of love, that you would come down to our level even to die for us, God. Thank you so much for that. May our lives flow out with gratitude. We pray this in your name. Amen.